Chapter Eight, Part B, of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume One, by Giacomo Casanova. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. Recording by J. C. Guan. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume One, The Venetian Years, by Giacomo Casanova. Episode Two, Cleric in Naples, Chapter Eight, Part B. This was the last night, probably we should never meet again. The flame of passion consumed us. She proposed that I should lift her up to the balcony through the open space. Where is the lover who would have objected to so attractive a proposal? I rose. And without being a Milo, I placed my hands under her arms. I drew her up towards me, and my desires are on the point of being fulfilled. Suddenly, I felt two hands upon my shoulders, and the voice of the keeper exclaimed, "What are you about?" I let my precious burden drop. She regains her chamber, and I, giving vent to my rage, throw myself flat on the floor of the balcony. And remained there without a movement, in spite of the shaking of the keeper, whom I was sorely tempted to strangle. At last, I rose from the floor and went to bed without uttering one word, and not even caring to replace the plank. In the morning, the governor informed us that we were free. As I left the lazaretto, with a breaking heart, I caught a glimpse of the Greek slave drowned in tears. I agreed to meet Friar Stefano at the exchange, and I took the Jew from whom I had hired the furniture to the convent of the Minims, where I received from Father Lazari ten sequins and the address of the bishop, who, after performing quarantine on the frontiers of Tuscany, had proceeded to Rome, where he would expect me to meet him. I paid the Jew, and made a poor dinner at an inn. As I was leaving it to join the monk, I was so unlucky as to meet Captain Alban, who reproached me bitterly for having led him to believe that my trunk had been left behind. I contrived to appease his anger by telling him all my misfortunes, and I signed a paper in which I declared that I had no claim whatsoever upon him. I then purchased a pair of shoes and an overcoat, and met Stefano. Whom I informed of my decision to make a pilgrimage to Our Lady of Loreto. I said I would wait there for him, and that we would afterwards travel together as far as Rome. He answered that he did not wish to go through Loreto, and that I would repent of my contempt for the grace of Saint Francis. He did not alter my mind, and I left for Loreto the next day in the enjoyment of perfect health. I reached the holy city. Tired almost to death, for it was the first time in my life that I had walked fifteen miles, drinking nothing but water, although the weather was very warm, because the dry wine used in that part of the country parched me too much. I must observe that, in spite of my poverty, I did not look like a beggar. As I was entering the city, I saw coming towards me an elderly priest of very respectable appearance, and. As he was evidently taking notice of me, as soon as he drew near, 
I saluted him, and inquired where I could find a comfortable inn. I cannot doubt, he said, that a person like you, traveling on foot, must come here from devout motives. Come with me. He turned back. I followed him, and he took me to a fine-looking house. After whispering a few words to a man who appeared to be a steward, he left me, saying very affably, You shall be well attended to. My first impression was that I had been mistaken for some other person, but I said nothing. I was led to a suit of three rooms. The chamber was decorated with damask hangings. The bedstead had a canopy, and the table was supplied with all materials necessary for writing. A servant brought me a light dressing-gown, and another came in with linen and a large tub full of water, which he placed before me. My shoes and stockings were taken off, and my feet washed. A very decent-looking woman, followed by a servant-girl, came in a few minutes later, and curtsying very low, she proceeded to make my bed. At that moment the Angelus bell was heard. Everyone knelt down, and I followed their example. After the prayer, a small table was neatly laid out, and I was asked what sort of wine I wished to drink, and I was provided with newspapers and two silver candlesticks. An hour afterwards I had a delicious fish supper, and before I retired to bed, a servant came to inquire whether I would take chocolate in the morning before or after Mass. As soon as I was in bed, the servant brought me a night lamp with a dial, and I remained alone. Except in France, I have never had such a good bed as I had that night. It would have cured the most chronic insomnia, but I was not laboring under such a disease, and I slept for ten hours. This sort of treatment easily led me to believe that I was not in any kind of hostelry, but where was I? How was I to suppose that I was in a hospital? When I had taken my chocolate, a hairdresser, quite a fashionable, dapper fellow, made his appearance, dying to give vent to his chattering propensities. Guessing that I did not wish to be shaved, he offered to clip myself down with the scissors, saying that I would look younger. Why do you suppose that I want to conceal my age? It is very natural, because... If your lordship did not wish to do so, your lordship would have shaved long ago. Countess Marcolini is here. Does your lordship know her? I must go to her at noon to dress her hair. I did not feel interested in the Countess Marcolini, and seeing it, the gossip changed the subject. Is this your lordship's first visit to this house? It is the finest hospital throughout the Papal States. I quite agree with you and I shall compliment His Holiness on the establishment. Oh, His Holiness knows all about it. He resided here before he became Pope. If Monsignor Carraffa had not been well acquainted with you, he would not have introduced you here. Such is the use of barbers throughout Europe. But you must not put any questions to them, for, if you do, they are sure to threat you to an impudent mixture of truth and falsehood and instead of you pumping them, they will warm everything out of you. Thinking that it was my duty to present my respectful compliments to Monsignor Carafa, 
I desired to be taken to his apartment. He gave me a pleasant welcome, showed me his library, and entrusted me to the care of one of his abbés, a man of parts, who acted as my cicerone everywhere. Twenty years afterwards, this same abbé was of great service to me in Rome, and, if still alive, he is a canon of St. John Lateran. On the following day, I took the communion in the Santa Casa. The third day was entirely employed in examining the exterior of this truly wonderful sanctuary, and early the next day I resumed my journey, having spent nothing except three paoli for the barber. Halfway to Marserata, I overtook Brother Stefano, walking on at very slow rate. He was delighted to see me again, and told me that he had left Ancona two hours after me, but that he never walked more than three miles a day, being quite satisfied to take two months for a journey which, even on foot, can easily be accomplished in a week. I want, he said, to reach Rome without fatigue and in good health, and in no hurry, and if you feel disposed to travel with me, and in the same quiet way, St. Francis will not find it difficult to keep us both during the journey. This lazy fellow was a man about thirty, red-haired, very strong and healthy, a true peasant who had turned himself into a monk only for the sake of living in idle comfort. I answered that, as I was in a hurry to reach Rome, I could not be his travelling companion. "'I undertake to walk six miles instead of three to-day,' he said, "'if you carry my cloak, which I find very heavy.' The proposal struck me as a rather funny one. I put on his cloak, and he took my greatcoat, but, after the exchange, we cut such a comical figure that every peasant we met laughed at us. His cloak would truly have proved a load for a mule. There were twelve pockets quite full, without taking into account a pocket behind, which he called Il Baticulo, and which contained alone twice as much as all the others. Bread, wine, fresh and salt meat, fowls, eggs, cheese, ham, sausages, everything was to be found in those pockets, which contained provisions enough for a fortnight. I told him how well I had been treated in Loretto, and he assured me that I might have asked Monsignor Carafa to give me letters for all the hospitals on my road to Rome, and that everywhere I would have met with the same reception. The hospitals, he added, are all under the curse of St. Francis, because the mendicant friars are not admitted in them. But we do not mind their gates being shut against us, because they are too far apart from each other. We prefer the homes of the persons attached to our order, these we find everywhere. Why do you not ask hospitality in the convents of your order? I am not so foolish. In the first place, I should not be admitted, because, being a fugitive, I have not the written obedience which must be shown at every convent, and I should even run the risk of being thrown into prison. Your monks are a cursed bad lot. In the second place, I should not be half so comfortable in the convents as I am with our devout benefactors. Why and how are you a fugitive? He answered my question by the narrative of his imprisonment and flight, the whole story being a tissue of absurdities and lies. 
the fugitive recollet friar was a fool, with something of the wit of Harlequin, and he thought that every man listening to him was a greater fool than himself. Yet, with all his folly, he was not bent in a certain species of cunning. His religious principles were singular. As he did not wish to be taken for a bigoted man, he was scandalous, and for the sake of making people laugh, he would often make use of the most disgusting expressions. He had no taste whatsoever for women, and no inclination towards the pleasures of the flesh, but this was only owing to a deficiency in his natural temperament, and yet he claimed for himself the virtue of continence. On that score everything appeared to him food for merriment, and when he had drunk rather too much, he would ask questions of such an indecent character that it would bring blushes on everybody's countenance. Yet the brute would only laugh. As we were getting within one hundred yards from the house of the devout friend whom he intended to honour with his visit, he took back his heavy cloak. On entering the house, he gave his blessing to everybody, and everyone in the family came to kiss his hand. The mistress of the house requested him to say mass for them, and the compliant monk asked to be taken to the vestry. But when I whispered in his ear, "'Have you forgotten that we have already broken our fast today?' he answered dryly. "'Mind your own business.' I dared not make any further remark, but during the mass I was indeed surprised, for I saw that he did not understand what he was doing. I could not help being amused at his awkwardness, but I had not yet seen the best part of the comedy. As soon as he had somehow or other finished his mass, he went to the confessional, and after hearing in confession every member of the family, he took it into his head to refuse absolution to the daughter of his hostess, a girl of twelve or thirteen, pretty and quite charming. He gave his refusal publicly, scolding her and threatening her with the torments of hell. The poor girl, overwhelmed with shame, left the church crying bitterly, and I, feeling real sympathy for her, could not help saying aloud to Stefano that he was a madman. I ran after the girl to offer her my consolations, but she had disappeared, and could not be induced to join us at dinner. This piece of extravagance on the part of the monk exasperated me to such an extent that I felt a very strong inclination to thrash him. In the presence of all the family, I told him that he was an impostor and the infamous destroyer of the poor child's honor. I challenged him to explain his reasons for refusing to give her absolution, but he closed my lips by answering very coolly, that he could not betray the secrets of the confessional. I could eat nothing, and was fully determined to leave the scoundrel. As we left the house, I was compelled to accept Juan Paolo as the price of the mock mass he had said. I had to fulfill the sorry duty of his treasurer. The moment we were on the road, I told him that I was going to part company, because I was afraid of being sent as a felon to the galleys, if I continued my journeys with him. He exchanged high words. I called him an ignorant scoundrel. He styled me a beggar. 
I struck him a violent slap on the face, which he returned with a blow from his stick. But I quickly snatched it from him, and leaving him, I hastened toward Maserata. A carrier who was going to Tolentino took me with him for two paoli, and for six more I might have reached Foglino in a wagon, but unfortunately a wish for economy made me refuse the offer. I felt well, and I thought I could easily walk as far as Valsimare, but I arrived there only after five hours of hard walking, and thoroughly beaten with fatigue. I was strong and healthy, but a walk of five hours was more than I could bear, because in my infancy I had never gone a league on foot. Young people cannot practice too much the art of walking. The next day, refreshed by a good night's rest, and ready to resume my journey, I wanted to pay the innkeeper, but alas, a new misfortune was in store for me. Let the reader imagine my sad position. I recollected that I had forgotten my purse, containing seven sequins, on the table of the inn at Tolentino. What a thunderbolt! I was in despair, but I gave up the idea of going back, as it was very doubtful whether I would find my money. Yet it contained all I possessed, save a few copper coins I had in my pocket. I paid my small bill, and, deeply grieved at my loss, continued my journey towards Seravel. I was within three miles of that place, when, in jumping over a ditch, I sprained my ankle, and was compelled to sit down on one side of the road, and to wait until someone should come to my assistance. In the course of an hour, a peasant happened to pass with his donkey, and he agreed to carry me to Seravol for one paolo. As I wanted to spend as little as possible, the peasant took me to an ill-looking fellow who, for two paoli paid in advance, consented to give me a lodging. I asked him to send for a surgeon, but I did not obtain one until the following morning. I had a wretched supper, after which I lay down in a filthy bed. I was in hope that sleep would bring me some relief, but my evil genius was preparing for a night of torments. Three men, armed with guns and looking like banditti, came in shortly after I had gone to bed, speaking in a kind of slang which I could not make out, swearing, raging, and paying no attention to me. They drank and sang until midnight, after which they threw themselves down on bundles of straw brought for them, and my host, who was drunk, came, greatly to my dismay, to lie down near me. Disgusted at the idea of having such a fellow for my bad companion, I refused to let him come, but he answered, with fearful blasphemies, that all the devils in hell could not prevent him from taking possession of his own bed. I was forced to make room for him, and exclaimed, Heavens, where am I? He told me that I was in the house of the most honest constable in all the papal states. Could I possibly have supposed that the peasant would have brought me amongst those accursed enemies of humankind? He laid himself down near me, but the filthy scoundrel soon compelled me to give him, for certain reasons, such a blow in his chest that he rolled out of bed. He picked himself up, and he renewed his beastly attempt. Being well aware 
that I could not master him without great danger, I got out of bed, thinking myself lucky that he did not oppose my wish, and crawling along as well as I could, found a chair on which I passed the night. At daybreak, my tormentor, caught up by his honest comrades, joined them in drinking and shouting, and the three strangers, taking their guns, departed. Left alone by the departure of the vile rabble, I passed another unpleasant hour, calling in vain for someone. At last, a young boy came in. I gave him some money, and he went for a surgeon. The doctor examined my foot, and assured me that three or four days would set me to rights. He advised me to be removed to an inn, and I most willingly followed his counsel. As soon as I was brought to the inn, I went to bed, and was well cared for. But my position was such that I dreaded the moment of my recovery. I feared that I should be compelled to sell my coat to pay the innkeeper, and the very thought made me feel ashamed. I began to consider that if I had controlled my sympathy for the young girl so ill-treated by Stefano, I should not have fallen into this sad predicament, and I felt conscious that my sympathy had been a mistake. If I had put up with the faults of the friar, if this and if that, and every other if was conjured up to torment my restless and wretched brain, yet I must confess that the thoughts which have their origin in misfortune are not without advantage to a young man, for they give him the habit of thinking, and the man who does not think never does anything right. The moment of the fourth day came, and I was able to walk, as the surgeon had predicted. I made up my mind, although reluctantly, to beg the worthy man to sell my great coat for me, a most unpleasant necessity, for rain had begun to fall. I owed fifteen paoli to the innkeeper, and four to the surgeon. Just as I was going to proffer my painful request, Brother Stefano made his appearance in my room, and burst into loud laughter, inquiring whether I had forgotten the blow from his stick. I was struck with amazement. I begged the surgeon to leave me with the monk, and he immediately complied. I must ask my readers whether it is possible, in the face of such extraordinary circumstances, not to feel superstitious. What is truly miraculous in this case is the precise minute at which the event took place, for the friar entered the room as the word was hanging on my lips. What surprised me most was the force of providence, of fortune, of chance, whatever name is given to it, of that very necessary combination which compelled me to find no hope but in that fatal monk, who had begun to be my protective genius in Chiozza at the moment my distress had likewise commenced. And yet, a singular guardian angel, this Stefano, I felt that the mysterious force which threw me in his hands was a punishment rather than a favor. Nevertheless, he was welcome, because I had no doubt of his relieving me from my difficulties, and whatever be the power that sent him to me, I felt that I could not do better than to submit to its influence. The destiny of that monk was to escort me to Rome. Che va piano va sano, said the friar, as soon as we were alone. 
he had taken five days to traverse the road over which I had travelled in one day. But he was in good health, and he had met with no misfortune. He told me that, as he was passing, he heard that an abbe, secretary to the Venetian ambassador at Rome, was lying ill at the inn, after having been robbed in Bansimara. I came to see you, he added, and as I find you recovered from your illness, we can start again together. I agree to walk six miles every day to please you. Come, let us forget the past, and let us be at once on our way. I cannot go. I have lost my purse, and I owe twenty paoli. I will go, and find the amount, in the name of St. Francis. He returned within an hour, but he was accompanied by the infamous constable, who told me that, if I had let him know who I was, he would have been happy to keep me in his house. I will give you, he continued, forty paoli, if you will promise me the protection of your ambassador. But if you do not succeed in obtaining it for me in Rome, you will undertake to repay me. Therefore, you must give me an acknowledgment of the debt. I have no objection. Every arrangement was speedily completed. I received the money, paid my debts, and left Seravol with Stefano. At one o'clock in the afternoon, we saw a wretched-looking house at a short distance from the road, and the friar said, It is a good distance from here to Colifiorito. We had better put up there for the night. It was in vain that I objected. Remonstraining that we were certain of having very poor accommodation, I had to submit to his will. We found a decrepit old man lying on a pallet, two ugly women of thirty or forty, three children entirely naked, a cow, and a cursed dog, which barked continually. It was a picture of squalid misery, but the niggardly monk, instead of giving alms to the poor people, asked them to entertain us to supper in the name of St. Francis. You must boil the hen, said the dying man to the females, and bring out of the cellar the bottle of wine, which I have kept now for twenty years. As he uttered those words, he was seized with such a fit of coughing that I thought he would die. The friar went near him, and promised him that, by the grace of St. Francis, he would get young and well. Moved by the sight of such misery, I wanted to continue my journey as far as Colifiorito, and wait there for Stefano. But the women would not let me go, and I remained. After boiling for four hours, the hen set the strongest teeth at defiance, and the bottle, which I uncorked, proved to be nothing but sour vinegar. Losing patience, I got hold of the monk's batticaslo, and took out of it enough for a plentiful supper and I saw the two women opening their eyes very wide at the sight of our provisions. We all ate with good appetite, and after our supper the women made us for two large beds of fresh straw, and we lay down in the dark, as the last bit of candle to be found in the miserable dwelling was burnt out. We had not been lying on the straw five minutes, when Stefano called out to me that one of the women had just placed herself near him, and at the same instant the other one takes me in her arms and kisses me.
I push her away, and the monk defends himself against the other. But mine, nothing daunted, insists upon laying herself near me. I get up. The dog springs at my neck, and fear compels me to remain quiet on my straw bed. The monk screams, swears, struggles. The dog barks furiously. The old man coughs. All is noise and confusion. At last, Stefano, protected by his heavy garments, shakes off the too loving shrew, and, braving the dog, manages to find his stick. Then he lays about to right and left, striking in every direction. One of the women exclaims, Oh, God! The friar answers, She has her quietus. Calm reigns again in the house. The dog, most likely dead, is silent. The old man, who perhaps has received his death blow, coughs no more. The children sleep, and the women, afraid of the singular caresses of the monk, sheer off into a corner. The remainder of the night passed off quietly. At daybreak I rose. Stefano was likewise soon up. I looked all around, and my surprise was great when I found that the women had gone out, and seeing that the old man gave no sign of life, and had a bruise on his forehead, I showed it to Stefano, remarking that very likely he had killed him. It is possible, he answered, but I have not done it intentionally. Then, taking up his baticulo and finding it empty, he flew into a violent passion. But I was much pleased, for I had been afraid that the women had gone out to get assistance and to have us arrested, and the robbery of our provisions reassured me, as I felt certain that the poor wretches had gone out of the way so as to secure impunity for their theft. But I laid great stress upon the danger we should run by remaining any longer, and I succeeded in frightening the friar out of the house. We soon met a wagoner going to Foligno. I persuaded Stefano to take the opportunity of putting a good distance between us and the scene of our last adventures, and as we were eating our breakfast at Foligno, we saw another wagon, quite empty, got a lift in it for a trifle, and thus wrote to Pisignano, where a devout person gave us a charitable welcome, and I slept soundly through the night without the dread of being arrested. Early the next day we reached Spoleti, where Brother Stepano had two benefactors, and careful not to give either of them a cause of jealousy, he favoured both. We dined with the first, who entertained us like princes, and we had supper and lodging in the house of the second, a wealthy wine merchant, and the father of a large and delightful family. He gave us a delicious supper, and everything would have gone on pleasantly, had not the friar, already excited by his good dinner, made himself quite drunk. In that state, thinking to please his new host, he began to abuse the other, greatly to my annoyance. He said the wine he had given us to drink was adulterated, and that the man was a thief. I gave him to lie to his face, and called him a scoundrel. The host and his wife pacified me, saying that they were well acquainted with their neighbor, and knew what to think of him. 
but the monk threw his napkin at my face, and the host took him very quietly by the arm and put him to bed in a room in which he locked him up. I slept in another room. In the morning I rose early and was considering whether it would not be better to go alone when the friar, who had slept himself sober, made his appearance and told me that we ought for the future live together like good friends and not give way to angry feelings. I followed my destiny once more. We resumed our journey, and at Soma, the innkeeper, a woman of rare beauty, gave us a good dinner, and some excellent cypress wine, which the Venetian couriers exchanged with her against delicious truffles found in the vicinity of Soma, which sold for a good price in Venice. I did not leave the handsome innkeeper without losing a part of my heart. It would be difficult to draw a picture of the indignation which overpowered me when, as we were about two miles from Terni, the infamous friar showed me a small bag full of truffles which the scoundrel had stolen from the amiable woman by way of thanks for her generous hospitality. The truffles were worth two sequins at last. In my indignation, I snatched the bag from him, saying that I would certainly return it to his lawful owner. But, as he had not committed the robbery to give himself the pleasure of making restitution, he threw himself upon me, and we came to a regular fight. But victory did not remain long in abeyance. I forced his stick out of his hands, knocked him into a ditch, and went off. On reaching Turney, I wrote a letter of apology to our beautiful hostess of Soma, and sent back the truffles. From Turney, I went on foot to Odricoli, where I only stayed long enough to examine the fine old bridge, and from there I paid four paoli to a wagoner who carried me to Castelnuovo, from which place I walked to Rome. I reached the celebrated city on the 1st of September, at nine in the morning. I must not forget to mention here a rather peculiar circumstance, which, however ridiculous it may be in reality, will please many of my readers. End of chapter 8, part B